This episode of the Miriam Institute podcast features a conversation with Brigadier General Amir Avivi, founder and CEO of Habitronistim. Habitronistim is a new movement comprised of senior defense experts and academics who promote the application of Israeli sovereignty to the Jordan Valley. That subject is now high on the political agenda in Israel, with the government now finally having been formed Discussion about the Jordan Valley has already dominated the diplomatic headlines in Israel and the United States. Avivi, who retired from the IDF as a Brigadier General, had a distinguished and varied career as a combat commander. He also served as aide-de-camp for the then Chief of Staff Moshe Bogi Alon during the height of the Oslo process, and his last position in the military was that of Senior Auditor for the military readiness of the entire Israel defense establishment. It's those experiences and a great many more that inform his positions on the subject of the Jordan Valley and its central importance to the viability of the State of Israel. I asked him to speak to the demographic, security and diplomatic concerns surrounding Israel's policy decisions as they pertain to the Jordan Valley something he was more than happy to do in this wide-ranging conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute, Israel's future in Israel's hands. Okay, good afternoon to everybody. Welcome to this webinar of the Miriam Institute. I'm Benjamin Anthony. I'm the CEO and the co-founder of the Institute, along with my colleague Rosita Panini, who is the co-founder and COO. And I want to begin by thanking my great and powerful colleague, Mr. Alan Langer, for bringing about this webinar today. We did have a different speaker initially arranged for this call that wasn't able to proceed due to some unforeseen circumstances, but we are honored to now host today Brigadier General Amir Avivi. And for those of you who don't know Brigadier General Amir Avivi, I just want to give you a brief background about him. And then he and I will have a conversation about his most important work that's being undertaken at this time. Brigadier General Amir Avivi concluded his service as the head of the auditing and consulting department of the Israeli Defense Establishment, including the Israel Defense Force, the Ministry of Defense, and Israeli military industries. In that position, Avivi managed more than 100 military auditors and advisors. He was responsible for the audit of military readiness, budgeting, procurement, projects, bids, cyber, logistics, infrastructure, and operations. Avivi fulfilled various command positions in the Corps of Engineers, where he led thousands of soldiers in a dynamic combat environment. Avivi served as brigade commander, deputy division commander, and head of the military school of engineers. He also served as the aide-de-camp for the then chief of the general staff of the Israel Defense Forces, Lieutenant General Moshe Bogi Yaalon, who now is a central player within the political system in the state of Israel. In that capacity as aide-de-camp, Avivi was at the heart of policymaking in the Israeli government and defense establishment and Avivi also serves as the principal of the New State Solution Working Group, where he and I have had the privilege of collaborating very intensely across several countries and in front of several governments, students, audiences, and so on. We might talk about that in due course, but today the focus of the conversation is about his, as I said, most important work as the CEO and founder of Habitronistic. And Habitronistim is a collective of senior experts, not exclusively, but including from the security realm, from the State of Israel, who are in favor of advancing the application of sovereignty over the Jordan Valley. Now, this movement could not be more timely. This movement comes, as everybody who follows the State of Israel knows, the Jordan Valley has been a central aspect of discussions between the administration of President Trump and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And now that a government has finally been formed between Prime Minister Netanyahu and former Chief of Staff Benny Gantz of the Kachol Lavan party, 
the issue of applying sovereignty to the Jordan Valley has never been more of the moment. So we're very pleased to have you here, General Abivi. Thank you so very much for giving your time. Just before I, I get you moving, I want to add a couple of quick personal points and also one important point of information. You know, in the diaspora overseas, when people hear about auditors, I think they oftentimes think of accountants. You are not an accountant. You are a general no. <laughs> with very extensive command experience. As I read in the introduction, you are somebody who has been responsible for maintaining, inspecting, and assessing Israel's military readiness, not as a consequence of qualifications as an accountant, those you don't have, but as a consequence of your qualifications as a defense expert. That's the first thing that I think should, should be very, very clear to everyone, the man that we have the pleasure of talking to. And the other thing is that we have had the privilege of bringing you to lecture at the preeminent universities around the world. And when I say preeminent, I mean that. Only a couple of months ago, you were at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. You also speak at Harvard Law School. In the same day, you spoke at both of those institutions. You've spoken at University of Pennsylvania Law School. You've briefed governments together with us in Poland. You've briefed governments in the United Kingdom. You've briefed governments and administrations in the United States of America. You're one of the most articulate and well-versed individuals on your subject. You're the son of a storied ambassador of the States of Israel. You had an international upbringing, moving from different countries. I think by the age of seven or eight, you spoke three or four languages. You then right. enlisted in the Israel Defense Forces, where you served as a lone soldier because your parents were out of the country and that qualified you as a lone soldier. You knew that you wanted to be an officer. You signed up for that. And at the expense of another career that you were considering, which was to be a, a musician, because you're quite an accomplished pianist, you decided that your place and your dedication was to be focused exclusively towards the betterment of the State of Israel and the defense of the State of Israel. And quite frankly, there's no better, clearer embodiment of that dedication than what you are doing now with Habit Honestim. And so I just want to say welcome to our webinar. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And good evening from Israel. Thank you very, very much. So, so let's, let's give a little bit of context to people over here, because if they haven't heard of Habit Honistim, we definitely want to make sure that they're clear not only about what it is you do, but also how they can become involved in that important work. So let, let me provide just a bit of context as, as best I can. Feel free to correct me, adjust anything. This is an opportunity for our viewers to get to know you not to get to know me. So for many years, there's been an organization which is called the uh, Commanders for Israel's Security. Now, this organization claims to have a list of senior officers from the Israel Defense Forces, roughly two to 300 in number. I hear different numbers. And if I could boil it down to basic, basic principles, they are in favor with the uppermost urgency of implementing the two-state solution as is commonly known. The two-state solution meaning a state for the Palestinian Arabs in Judea and Samaria, East Jerusalem as its capital, uh, and they don't really tackle the issue of the Gaza Strip as best I'm aware, but that's what they're after. So a boilerplate two-state solution. And for many years, even decades, they've actually been the only show in town there hasn't really been a voice of equals who are debating them, challenging them, pressing one another to explain their ideas. And along comes Brigadier General Amir Avivi, and he says, I will have at that issue. I believe that I need to do that. And so you established Habit Honistim. Now, Habit Honistim, in a, in a direct translation, would mean the security officials. You are not in favor of the two-state solution as commonly understood. Your movement is to apply Israel's sovereignty to the Jordan Valley, and you believe that there's a historic moment right now that mustn't be missed. So tell me how it is that you decided to go and establish Habit Honestim. Start there, if you would. Okay, first of all, I want to say that there, is, there are actually two kinds of two-state solution. The first one uh, was the, the original one, the Oslo two-state solution, uh, which was pushed forward by late uh, Prime Minister uh, Rabin. 
And Rabin set very clear red lines when he uh, pushed forward Oslo. He said three things. First of all, he said, the Jordan Valley will be Israel's uh, border. And this was an essential issue for him. Uh, he understood that Israel cannot defend itself without the Jordan Valley that separates between the whole Middle East, especially as we see today, and Israel with Judea and Samaria. And the other thing he said, I'm completely opposed to the division of Jerusalem. And he even said, if we divide Jerusalem, if it's, this issue is uh, talked about, I prefer not having peace and I won't divide Jerusalem. This is Rabin. This is the left wing in Israel. And the third thing he said, he said, I am in favor of an autonomy in Judea and Samaria, something that is much less than a state. And later on, in the beginning of the 21st century, there was a shift. It, was, uh, it happened uh, when Barak, uh, Ehud Barak was prime minister in 2000. And at that point, they decided to completely destroy all these red lines Rabin established and started talking about a completely new plan called the separation plan. The separation plan is a catastrophe to Israel. The, the idea behind it is complete withdrawal from the Jordan Valley, almost a complete withdrawal from all of Judea and Samaria. We are talking about um, kicking something like 150,000 Jews from their homes and retreating all the way to what we know as Route 6 or the Green Line to the shallow areas of uh, Tel Aviv, Farsaba, and so on, and giving the Palestinians all the control over Judea and Samaria, which is the high ground controlling all of uh, this area uh, of uh, Tel Aviv, and opening the Jordan Valley to all the Middle East, basically enabling millions of jihadists to penetrate into the heart of Israel, into Judea and Samaria. Now, what is Israel? Israel, you know, at the end of the day, Benjamin, is Judea and Samaria with nine miles of shore and nine miles of Jordan Valley. When basically Judea and Samaria control Israel. If you control Judea and Samaria, you control Israel. So Putting forward, pushing forward a plan that gives the Palestinians the whole area of the mountains is basically saying we are not going to defend anymore Israel, we are leaving it to the Palestinians. So I'm saying again, there's not one kind of two-state solution. There are two kinds. There was Rabin, which is, by the way, very similar to Trump's plan, and what's going on today. And we oppose this completely. So you're essentially saying that the plan of Yitzhak Rabin was somehow hijacked, reconstituted, and packaged, and then sold as though it was the original Rabin plan and ethos, but it was never the case. Is that correct? Is that what you're trying to express here? Yeah. For this organization called Commanders for Israel Security, Rabin was the leader of the left in Israel, is uh, what uh, you would they call uh, a mishichist, a messianic, you know, a, a crazy guy. And the claims they make today, nobody claimed them at the time Rabin was prime minister. When Rabin presented all these red lines, everyone agreed to that. On the left, I'm talking, and the right uh, opposed the state anyway, but it was a mainstream idea. I mean, Rabin, what Rabin did, he took Begin's plan, which was established around the peace agreement with Egypt, part of the peace agreement with Egypt, talked about establishing a Palestinian autonomy in Gaza and in Judea and Samaria. So basically, it was Begin who started this idea. And Rabbit did something very simple. He, he took the same idea, 
embraced it. And this is what enabled him to win at, at, at that time. He received 44 mandates, which is quite a lot, uh, because he embraced a plan that uh, was already established in the peace plan with uh, Egypt. So you've got you've got these these security officials, and again, the name of their organization is Commanders for Israel Security. Now these are really a who's who of security experts. There are generals in there. There are commanders of various fronts. There are heroes of seminal wars and conflicts. I believe that until recently it was headed up by by General Reshef, who of course was a was a hero of the Yom Kippur War, as an example. Sure. Explain to me how it can be that you sit and say, by implementing a Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria, you completely surrender the security of the state of Israel, and yet you have these 200 other generals who are saying you couldn't be more wrong. That is the way to ensure the security of the state of Israel. Please reconcile those two points. First of all, I must say that this organization, 95% of the people, yes, sure, many of them are generals and so on, they are veterans of the Yom Kippur War, a whole different generation, most of them 80 years old and more. To me, completely detached from today's reality, they live and talk about concepts that were relevant maybe 30 years ago, certainly not relevant to the new Middle East. And they assume that the whole issue is about a discussion between us and the Palestinians regarding Judea and Samaria. And if you just give them this area, that will be the end of the conflict between us and the Arab world, and that's it. Now, if you have eternal peace, why be bothered about security? You basically solve the problem. Now, we know that's not true. And you cannot build a plan according to an idea that there will be eternal peace. And you cannot build a plan that gives the security responsibility to somebody else, not to Israel. Um, so they, by the way, have never presented a plan that explains how you can defend Israel from Tel Aviv or Fasaba. There is no such plan, and there will never be, because it's, it's not possible. But still, they say we have to withdraw all, all, and then leave all of Judea and Samaria, and everything will be fine. So, so I, I just want to, to understand how you came to all of this. You, you're there, you're a retired general of the Israel Defense Forces, and you decide that now is the time to establish an organization, and not only to establish it, but to lead that organization, calling for the application of sovereignty in the Jordan Valley. Why is now the time, and why did you feel that you had to engage in that? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, their ideas pose an existential threat to Israel, if implemented. And, and as you said, the only voice of generals you heard till now is theirs, and it's a very very radical voice. It's not mainstream at all. I mean, what they are saying represents uh, maybe 4% of uh, Israeli voters. And the mainstream officers had no organization uh, that would be used as a platform to uh, talk about uh, different ideas. So there was a huge vacuum here that, that needed to be dealt. And I, 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 I felt that people are, are afraid to speak out, to say what they think. They were intimidated by the fact that they were talking here about high-ranking generals, some of them, as you said, war heroes and so on. But when somebody has ideas that they might endanger Israel existentially, I think that you have to be professional enough and brave enough to, if you think otherwise, to speak out. And this is what the Bitchonist team are doing. And this is why we established this organization. And you know, it's amazing. We started a Bitchonist team three months ago. We have now 700 officers, 720 actually. 
Uh, and every day we are going growing very, very fast uh, because really there was a huge need for that. So I'm very happy it's uh, moving forward very fast. So you've got 720 qualified individuals who are on board with Habitron Nistim. You want to apply Israeli sovereignty to the Jordan Valley. Let's go through that idea. First and foremost, how is that not a security liability? Why is that the right step to take security-wise now? Because there are changing facts there. There are diplomatic considerations of doing so. There might be a diplomatic backlash. All sorts of things are to be dealt with and to be assessed prior to doing that. But you and your group of 420, how many was it? 720 officers say, no, now is the time. Why is it safe to do that? Well, first of all, the way we look at things, we, we ask a simple question. What will ensure Israel's survival and Israel's ability to thrive in the long term? And when I'm talking about the long term, I always say that a, a nation that exists 4,000 years needs to be able to think at least 1,000 years ahead. I'm not talking about what will happen in a month. I'm not talking about what will happen in six months. I am talking about what are Israel's needs a thousand years from now. And once you understand what these needs are, talking about national security, then you have to seize the moment. If there is a moment in history when you can achieve and, and do what is needed for Israel's future, then you have to seize the moment. You have to understand that you can take a certain level of uh, uh, uncertainty and 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 do the right thing now we saw this when israel decided to to apply sovereignty in the golan heights it happened again when israel applied its sovereignty over jerusalem and once again when president trump said that he recognizes jerusalem as israel's capital and he moved the embassy nobody knew exactly what will happen but we did the right thing we did the zionistic right thing and it worked very well and i don't think it's going to be different i, I don't see today especially today i don't see anything dramatic that would happen from israel's taking care of its national security needs okay so let let, let me push you a little bit on that you apply sovereignty to the golan heights okay and we get that recognized several decades thereafter by President Donald Trump. You're not absorbing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Palestinian Arabs when you do that. People do not live up there. It's not a densely populated area. You open up an embassy in Jerusalem. President Donald Trump does that. Even though the state of Israel says that Jerusalem is our capital, President Donald Trump, several decades thereafter, declares it as such, and actually opens an embassy there. You're not absorbing an additional number of Palestinian Arabs by doing that. When you apply sovereignty to the Jordan Valley, people will say you're doing precisely that. You are absorbing Palestinian Arabs into the state of Israel, and that this constitutes, in the term that I find objectionable, incidentally, a demographic threat. Deal with that, because it's a distinction from the examples that you just mentioned. Yes, so sorry for being a bit uh, blunt about that, but I think there is no bigger lie than saying that if Israel applies sovereignty over areas that are not part of the Palestinian Authority, it's absorbing Palestinians. When, when we uh, did the first step in Oslo, we put, I would say almost, not all, but almost all the Palestinians under Palestinians govern and rule. Palestinians are governed by Palestinians. They are not governed by Israelis. In Gaza, we have the Hamas, unfortunately, but the Hamas is the government of two million Palestinians approximately in Gaza. In Judea and Samaria, this area was divided in Oslo to three areas. Area A, Area B, and Area C. Areas A and B, 
This is where all the Palestinians live and reside, or most of them. And it's governed by the Palestinians. Now, nobody in Israel, nobody in Israel is talking about applying sovereignty in areas that are part of the Palestinian Authority. We're talking about applying sovereignty only in areas where you have Jewish towns. And just to be, uh, to say the exact numbers, talking specifically about the, the Jordan Valley, the most, uh, the biggest plan I saw about uh, where to apply sovereignty in the Jordan Valley includes one small town of Palestinians, which has about three to 4,000 Palestinians. This is the whole story. And these 4,000 Palestinians will receive Israeli citizenship. They will be offered, they, they can refuse to take it, but that's the whole issue. It's not about absorbing any Palestinians. Now, Trump's plan is the living proof that what I'm saying here is also according to international law because the, 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 the American establishment wouldn't uh, take a plan and push it forward without the best lawyers going over it. Okay, you don't uh, publish a plan that you cannot defend uh, talking about the international law. And this is exactly what the plan says. The plan says Israel can apply sovereignty over areas in its own control. And still there will be a Palestinian uh, state entity in the area, in the other areas. And when you when you talk about the plan, you're not referring to the plan of the Bitronistim, you're referring to the Trump peace. Trump's plan, of course. Yeah. Okay. So I actually don't like speaking about international law when it comes to issues like this. And the reason is because you can put forward one lawyer and the opposition will always put forward another lawyer. And the simple fact of the matter is that the attachment of the people of Israel to the land of Israel moves beyond that. And it will not be made or broken in accordance with what an international lawyer has to say. And it will not be made or broken based on what even a friendly administration to the state of Israel has to say about it. In other words, if the administration of President Trump was to turn around and say, actually, we've got a second opinion and we do view this as illegal and controversial under international, that would not change or adjust the attachment of our people to that land. So there's oh, perfectly right. And, and there's something else at play here, and I want people to hear it from you, given who you are and what you've undertaken. Now, you're sitting here, forgive me for personalizing this, you're sitting here, you don't have a kippah on your head, you don't have peyot side curls, you're, you're not wearing religious garb, you're not from an orthodox observant background, but there's something that motivates you when it comes to the Jordan Valley and Judea and Samaria. What is it? Well, it's very simple. I'm a Jew. This is my land. I know that there is no other option for the Jewish people survival but having our own state, and it must be that viable one. We're not going to be pushed back to a ghetto. And it's not about uh, just a standard of living or things like that. We need a viable state. Now, Israel is growing very fast. In 20 to 30 years, there will be more than 20 million Israelis. Where exactly do you expect people to live? We cannot live in an area with the weeds of nine miles. This is from the sea to the green line. Now, I jog nine miles in the morning. It's conceivable to me that you jog your own country in the morning. What kind of state can, 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 can live in nine miles and be in the shallow areas and not in the mountains? Now, by the way, when people, you said to me before, are quite fed up to talk about the corona. But I think that the ideas that are pushed by commanders of Israel security is creating one big New York in uh, the shallow areas of Israel. So 
something like it's going on now, like the corona, can, can destroy a country like that. You, you need space. And, and you need to uh, control high ground. You know, we, the Jewish people, we defeated empires in Judea and Samaria. This is a crucial area for us. So sure, I, I don't want to control uh, the Palestinians. I don't have any plans uh, and I don't think we should uh, absorb them. They should govern, govern themselves, but okay, they are controlling 40% of Judea and Samaria. We are controlling the other 60% and so it's fine. We hope you're enjoying this podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute. The Miriam Institute was established in order to provide a forum in which leading Israeli experts of diverse and disparate political and ideological perspectives could come together and share their experience, expertise and opinions about the State of Israel for the consideration of our readership, listeners and viewers overseas by way of online content and in-person presentations, lectures and events. You can learn more about these initiatives via our website www.miriaminstitute.org All of the work that we undertake is made possible by way of tax-deductible donations from people like you. We invite you to make a tax-deductible contribution to our organization via our website and we thank you in advance of your support. Please enjoy the rest of this podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute. Israel's future in Israel's hands. So let, let's go through another couple of clarifications, and then I'm going to move on to, to prospective opportunities that come by way of this or separate to it. There are 720 individuals now in, in your group. On the other side, and I don't know if I'm framing it correctly by saying the other side, it may be that you view them as the other side, it may be that you just view them as a different opinion and you welcome their different opinion. You can define that. But very, very often people say, well, the people who are part of the organization that calls for the establishment of the two-state solution as defined under Ehud Barak in your definition of it earlier in the call, these are- The separation plan. The separation plan. These are- I, I, I suggest we start, Calling it what it is. It's a different plan, the separation plan. The separation plan. So, so the, those who advocate for the separation plan are secular, left-leaning, progressive, certainly dedicated citizens of the states of Israel, certainly a legitimate voice within the states of Israel, but they're all of that camp. And then on the flip side, Amir, you have people saying anybody who wants to hold ground in Judea and Samaria or the Jordan Valley are right-wing, orthodox, messianic Jews. The composition of your group, do you know their politics? Are they all very orthodox? Are they messianic in their viewpoint? What has moved them towards their position? Well, 95% of the group are secular. Most of them, by the way, don't live in Judea and Samaria. They, you know, they live in the major cities of Israel. Um, I think that the way we see it um, we try to, 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 to look at things, uh, analyzing reality in a realistic way. Basically, uh, I, I, cannot, I, I, can, I, I can agree that the fact that we are talking about a situation where we have a Palestinian entity completely surrounded by Israel is a complex issue. But when I put Israel's security and Israel needs in the future and ask myself, okay, what's more basic, a survival or uh, how we deal with the fact that we have this Palestinian entity? The answer is very simple. The, our security needs are rigid. You cannot play with them. And anybody who tries to tell a story that we can play around, we can bring international forces, the UN maybe, let the Palestinians guard us and so on, is endangering Israel existentially. Now, when we're talking about statecraft, this is a much, much more flexible issue. 
I'll give a simple example. The Vatican is a state, a state that has even a representation in the UN. Mm -hmm. They have their own passports. It's a state the size of a neighborhood inside the capital of another state, namely Italy, in Rome. They don't have an army. They don't have an airport. They don't have airspace. And it's a state. Now, if this is a state, anything can be a state. So basically, finding a solution for the Palestinians. And as you know, Benjamin, you and I are, are pushing forward a much, much better solution than the two-state solution, a much more viable solution, anchoring a state, a real state for the Palestinians in Gaza and the Sinai Peninsula. So we are looking for a solution. And it's better than what uh, has been offered to the Palestinians till now. There are solutions for the Palestinians. There cannot be a solution that undermines Israel's very existence. So and this is why we are so uh, determined to make sure that all our needs are met. So let's let's talk about two two points. One of which just came out of, of your answer. So if if I, just so that everybody's clear and aware of my personal viewpoint, although in the Miriam Institute, as you know, you just debated, for example, Dr. Nachman Shai, former member of Knesset here in Manhattan, and we specialize in putting forward diverse and disparate viewpoints about the state of Israel. We're dedicated to doing that. My own view is very, very clear. I don't think that the state of Israel should in any way, shape or form enter into any discussions about the ceding of land. I think it's a dreadful idea, it's a flawed policy, it's never worked, and in my opinion, it never will work. I also don't think it's within the remit of legislators of the state of Israel to do so. I think that legislators within Israel have one task, that's to shuffle and shuttle us forward to ever-improved progress while maintaining and retaining the state of Israel as it is. Now, I'm willing to debate that, I welcome people to debate it, and you yourself have engaged in that debate, and many of our experts take a contrary view, and they're very qualified. But I think those experts who take a contrary view to yours and, and to mine would probably say to you, well, I like your idea about the Vatican, but the people there um, do not have national aspirations. This is not a true comparison because there, they're not seeking to establish a state. They're not seeking to establish attachment beyond the, the surrounds and the confines of the Vatican. So to use that as an example of why this can be applied to the story of the Palestinians is a little bit disingenuous. Deal with that if you would. Well, I, I would say this. When another entity says that its national aspiration is to get hold of your own capital, they're not looking for peace, they're looking for war. So basically, I'm not against national aspirations, but we have to find a solution for the Palestinians that doesn't undermine Israel's right to exist in borders that are defensible. Now, when we analyze to the depths what are the real interests on the Palestinian side, I would say this. I think that uh, in Judea and Samaria, the vast majority of Palestinians want to be part of the Israeli ecosystem. They work, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians work in Israel. They gain in Israel four times more than they can gain in the Palestinian Authority. They want to be part of Israel. They want to work in Israel. They want to enjoy Israel's GDP, which is more than $40,000 and not Palestinian GDP that is less than $3,000. Right. So they want to be part of us. We don't want them to be uh, Israeli civilians. We want them to be Palestinian civilians. Citizens. Citizens, Citizen, sorry. So we, we need to find the right equilibrium. We want to keep them uh, under Palestinian uh, government, we want them to enjoy this aspiration of being part of Palestine. But again, not at the expense 
of undermining Israel's security, especially when we know that they are educated, unfortunately, in schools from a very young age to hate Israelis and to hate Jews. So I would say that for decades to come, there will be a population there that uh, is going to uh, potentially want to hurt us. And we have to be realistic. We have to make sure that anything we agree upon uh, is something that enables Israel to deal with anything that happens. The other thing is we are saying to the world, listen, you want to, to solve the Palestinian issue? Bring more land to the discussion. Nobody can expect this issue to be solved in an area with the weeds of 45 miles from the sea to the Dead Sea. So, it's unheard of. So uh, there's something else that I want to get you to weigh in on. Because I think that this, well, let me not lead you. I, I, want, I want to hear your opinion on it. There are many voices that are fiercely pro-Israel in the diaspora, including voices such as Professor Alan Dershowitz, including heads of various organizations who say, listen, in 2005, the state of Israel removed all of its citizens, all Israelis, from Gush Katif, from the Gaza Strip. And it had its challenges, but it wasn't ruinous. It wasn't too deleterious to the fabric of the state of Israel. And because you removed 15,000 in 2005 from Gaza, 15,000 Jewish residents there, you can definitely do that again in the case of Judea and Samaria. In other words, it's been done once, it can be done again. And anybody who says it can't be done again needs only to look at the example of Gaza. Now, one of the people in your group, Abitronistim, is Major General Gershon HaKohen, the former commander of the Northern Corps, in my opinion, one of the greatest strategists in the world today. He's also the individual who, when he was a brigadier general, was tasked by Ariel Sharon, then the prime minister in 2005, to oversee the disengagement of from the Gaza Strip. He is completely opposed to further concessions. You are completely opposed to these further concessions. How do you answer this idea of Professor Alan Dershowitz, for example, among many, many others who are well-intentioned, that we've removed Jews once, we can remove Jews again, and we've got a perfect example for it, and you have no example to the contrary. What would be your response? Well, the plan of disengagement uh, started by Prime Minister Sharon. At the time, I was aide the camp of the General Chief of Staff. Sharon decided to disengage without any consulting with this defense establishment. We read about this idea uh, in the newspapers and uh, when it was published. And a week later, uh, Sharon uh, had a cabinet meeting uh, with the heads of the security of Israel. And I was sitting in this meeting as well. And he, has, he asked Bogi Elon, and he asked Avi Dichter, that was head of Shin Bet at the time, and Bogi what Elon will happen? Staff at the time. Yes, Bogi Elon was the chief of staff and uh, Avi Dichter was uh, head of Shin Bet. He asked both of them, what will happen? if Israel disengages from Gaza. Both of them said exactly the same thing with the exactly the same words. They said to him, if you disengage from Gaza, in one year, Gaza will become Hamastan, Al-Qaedastan, and Hezbollah-Stan. The Palestinian Authority will be destroyed there, and Hamas will take, will take over. And it was amazing to see that exactly one year after the disengagement, Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip. They threw all the Palestinian Authority from the high buildings, and the ones that remained alive fled to the fence and were taken to by Israel, saved by Israel 
and moved to Judea and Samaria. From that moment onwards, the Hamas has been building a force of tens of thousands of missiles that was, were shot to Israel. And today, any moment, any time the Hamas wants to shoot, they shoot. Yeah. So we lost complete control of this area. And now we're saying, okay, it's a terrible situation. And we might need to conquer Gaza again. Now conquering Gaza today, the way Gaza looks today, means thousands of Israelis killed, of soldiers. And it would take like four to five years to get control of this area again. So the prices are phenomenal. And this is a very small area. This is a very shallow area. It's nothing, nothing like Judea and Samaria. If you do the same in Judea and Samaria, and Judea and Samaria becomes Hamastan, it might be a situation that the IDF, the IDF won't, won't win at all. I mean, if I'm given command of the Palestinian forces, and I'm not, uh, I don't think I'm the most stable general, you know, I'm okay. But if I'm given command of the Palestinian forces and I'm controlling Judea and Samaria, I am sure I can defeat the IDF. I can think of a plan that in two, three, four years, I will build the force in a way that the IDF will lose. And this is something the Jewish people cannot afford. And we cannot afford a situation when we do mistakes, we have to go to a, a war of tens of thousands of people killed on both sides, by the way, to correct this mistake. So I suggest not do this mistake again. I mean, somebody who says that this engagement was a good plan and everything is good now, doesn't really understand what's going on. I want to give a, a small example, a really small one. In the last events in Gaza, we had to stop the trains from uh, the south to Tel Aviv because there is the one place it's one kilometer, like let's say one mile, that Gaza controls the area where the train passes. And since they shoot uh, missiles from there. Control it overlooks this, this area. It overlooks, exactly. And it's only one mile. Yeah. Okay. Because of one mile, all the transport between the south of Israel to Tel Aviv by train was stopped. In Judea and Samaria, in any point in Judea and Samaria, you control everything, all the center of Israel, all the roads, all the way to road number two on the shore, road number four, road number six. Any place in Judea and Samaria, you can shoot a missile. So it means that if there is anything small happening, at that moment, all the center of Israel is closed. Nobody can move, cars, trains, anything. And, and I want to give another example to, 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 to understand that anybody who says that the IDF is the strongest army in the world, and I, I don't know, in the region or whatever, I want to give a small example. Each time in the border of Lebanon that we knew that Hezbollah is going to shoot a missile, and all the Israeli intelligence was focused on finding this uh, group of terrorists that is going to shoot the missiles, and all the area was closed and so on. In 100% of these events, at the end of the event, they managed to shoot the missile. So even if Israel concentrates everything, all its uh, uh, abilities on one small event, not many, one. They didn't manage to, to stop it. Why? For a very simple reason. Because Israel is, is very good technologically, but then if you have like three terrorists 
going with a missile without cell phones, without anything electronic, what does Israel technology help? You cannot detect them. And it's very difficult to, to find them in the bushes and so on. So no, the IDF cannot defend Israel from the green line without Judea and Samaria. That, that's a fact. And I'm willing to discuss it with any general that thinks that this is possible. So I, I want to, in the 10 minutes or so that remain, I just want to deal, as I said, with some perspective ideas. Now, you and I, we work very, very closely, and we have done for a couple of years on the new state solution. You may be able to see on the maps behind me, Amir, the new state solution is there. Yeah, I see that. Oh, and, and you can see that in true color, and you can see it also in various other manifestations. Tell people just in brief form about the new state solution. And I'd also like you to tell me, does the new state solution in any way become impeded by the annexation of the Jordan Valley? Not annexation, but the application of sovereignty to the Jordan Valley. So maybe before talking about the new state solution, I want to answer that. I think that once sovereignty is, is applied, it's not only about the Jordan Valley, we're talking all the time about the Jordan Valley, but we're talking also about the, all the Jewish towns in Judea and Samaria, which is a very big deal. So basically, we see three things that are happening. One, a declaration that Jerusalem forever will be united and under uh, Israel as Israel's uh, capital. We're talking about uh, the Jordan Valley, and we're talking about all the towns in Judea and Samaria. Once this reality becomes, two things will happen. One is that people who supported the two-state solution or the separation plan will have to understand that they need a new idea, because their idea of separation will be over, won't be relevant anymore. The other thing is that most Israelis, including I, including the Bitchonistim, and as you said, Benjamin, we oppose any more seeding of land in Judea and Samaria because we think it will endanger Israel and we won't be able to defend uh, effectively the towns there. So therefore, in, we are very uh, in favor of one part of Trump's plan, but then we oppose the other part. So also the right wing in Israel will need to find a new solution because everybody needs an alternative. And, and I think that the, the new state solution will become for, for maybe for the first time a very, very relevant alternative for all sides, both uh, the supporters of the two state and the opposers of the, the Palestinian state in, uh, in uh, Judea and Samaria. Now, I would like to share uh, for a moment um, a specific um, slide talking about that. Now, we, we see, um, okay, we see here the area of Israel, including Judea and Samaria, all the way to the Jordan Valley. Now, I want everybody to look at this area. Look now in 220, how densely populated the land of Israel is. There is no potential here to do anything meaningful, talking about trying to create two states. Now, I, I want to remind people that when we talk about a Palestinian state, it's not only about the people who are at the moment living uh, in Judea and Samaria or in Gaza, we're talking about millions of Palestinians who live in other countries who potentially will be able to come back to their own state. Where will they come back to? Talking about Israel, the same. We have millions of Jews. Israel must be at all times ready to absorb Jews who want to make Aliyah. And I think that around what's going on in the world today, in Europe, in the States, that's a very relevant thing. So we need space for Jews, and Palestinians need space for Palestinians, and there is no space here, not, not too much. 
But look at this. Look at the Sinai Peninsula. This is the real potential. This is a beautiful area along one of the most beautiful shores of the Middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's rich with gas. It's rich with oil. It's a it's a great it's a great area. The Egyptians are continuing to build their civilization around the Nile, and not much further than that. They're not really building their civilization in Sinai Peninsula. And this is the potential. This is what I was talking about, saying we need to bring more land to the discussion. Now, the Sinai Peninsula is 60,000 kilometers square. It's 10 times bigger than all of Judea and Samaria and Gaza together. It's a very big area. So it's enough that you take 10% of this area in the northern part, along the beach, a continuous area from Gaza, and you are able to build a beautiful uh, state along the shores of the Mediterranean Sea for the Palestinians, a vast area rich with uh, gas and oil and so on. And of course, the people in Judea and Samaria, they don't need to move. They can be Palestinian uh, citizens, just like the opposite. I mean, if you anchor the state of the Palestinians in Judea and Samaria, still you have Gaza. They are not connected. So here we are, we are suggesting to anchor the solution in Gaza because Gaza today is a state. It potentially can be a very meaningful state. It's just too small. The Gazans are locked in an area with the width of uh, three and a half miles. It's a very bad solution. The, the two-state solution does, doesn't really uh, give an answer to how to solve the Gaza issue. So we say, okay, let's take this problem, intractable problem, and let's start from there. Let's solve the issue of Gaza, enlarge it into the Sinai Peninsula with Egyptian consent, and build a viable state in, in the Sinai Peninsula and in Gaza. And just before you take off that slide, for those people who would turn around and say, and we hear this nonsense all the time, obviously, Amir, we, and we know it's nonsense, people turn around and say, ah, so what you actually want to do is you want to take the Palestinian Arabs and you want to damp them in the desert somewhere and leave them to their own devices. The reality of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who are looking at this slide, the state of Israel, which you now see fully illuminated just above the Sinai Peninsula, looked exactly like the Sinai Peninsula before we started to develop it. So the moment is upon us, really, because we have the know-how, we have the expertise, and we have the experience of building a state. And when Amir and I and Rosita and our entire team talk about the establishment of a state for the Palestinian Arabs in the Sinai Peninsula with contiguity into Gaza or vice versa, we're talking about an independent, sovereign, viable, thriving state where the Palestinian Arabs can determine their own future. That's a far better deal than anything that's being put forward by the separation plan, which does not offer the Palestinian Arabs a state. It offers them at best a sub-state. And that's far better, obviously, than any other alternatives that have been put forward. And we're gaining traction with that. Remember, for our American listeners, Las Vegas looked just like that desert before somebody, a visionary, went over there and said, I think that this place has potential. So there is one point more, Benjamin. No, please. We, don't, we don't say a lot, but... The areas we are talking about here, it's exactly where Israel chose to build towns and cities yes. when it controlled the Sinai Peninsula. Yamit, Yamit was, was exactly here, yeah. this Absolutely. area. Yeah. We thought it was a great place. So we, we we're not we... suggesting anything that we don't want to do. Correct. Do. And if you can take this uh, slide down, I just wanted to ask you about one other thing before we, we end this call, Amir. Where can people learn more about Habitronistim? Where can they go to find out more information about you? Well, we have uh, Facebook, we have uh, Twitter, we have Instagram, and you just write Habitronistim uh, with an H, with lot CH. And um, we have a website that uh, is under, uh, it's online, but it's under construction talking about uh, English. We started with uh, 
is a, a website in Hebrew. We're working on a, a website in English. I, I must say sincerely that we started building the Bitchonistim in January and we thought that we'll launch the Bitchonistim somewhere around April, but events have happened so fast that they already in January we launched the organization. I thought that at this stage I will manage to bring, I don't know, maybe 20 officers to the organization and now we have over 700. So a lot of good news, but it also requires us to move very fast and uh, take care of everything uh, as things happen. So, so, and also when you get that English website app, we will send it around to our, our listeners to this call as well. And right, I, I just want to thank you. And before we adjourn, I want to, to talk very quickly about what we've got coming up. You've kindly offered to speak to our listeners on Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israel's Independence Day celebrations. I very much encourage everybody on this call to dial in for that because I know just how passionate you are about the existence of the States of Israel and the unique perspectives that you bring. I also know that you're fast to move and quick to execute on any plan. And so if you have ambitions for Habitronistim, I know that they're led by the right person at the right time. And we absolutely wish you every success. You know that. You know that we wish you that success and you know that we're dedicated to helping you to promote that. And I also want to say that there are people within our organization who profoundly disagree with your viewpoint on this. And there are others who profoundly agree with you. And they're all under this one roof now, which is called the Miriam Institute. And it's miriaminstitute.org, as everybody knows. And we, we are for the idea, not of saying one opinion is right or one opinion is wrong, but of having ideas challenged, scrutinized, debated, but having the future of the state of Israel led by the people of Israel who live within the state. Because they're the ones who ultimately will have to live with the outcomes of the policies that they espouse. So if you espouse this and somebody else espouses a different view, at the end of the day, the winner of that debate will have to live with that which he or she puts forward. And it's very, very virtuous. It's very important. I hope you'll write for us more. And in that spirit, I hope you'll come back for a separate discussion because there's something that I would love to get into with you. I actually think that we are more than able to go forward to smash and to destroy Hamas in the Gaza Strip. I don't think that we should be deterred at the prospect of that. It's my opinion. I stand by the opinion. But I'd like to have a discussion with you. And I'd like you and me perhaps to talk about that at greater length because it's such an important topic that you highlighted. You, of course, do so from an eminently qualified position. And you know how greatly I respect your position. My own view on it is I think it's high time that we stopped saying that terror organizations can make or break a, a, a conflict-ending alternative, such as the new state solution. I think it's high time the international community stopped rising and falling according to the whims and wills of Hamas. And I think that actually the devil that you know over there in the Gaza Strip, which is Hamas, and I'm not referring to the citizens of Gaza or the civilians in Gaza, I'm talking about Hamas, I think that that devil is bad enough. And I think it can be crushed. I think it can be smashed. I don't think it would take four to five years to do it. And I think that we would be able to bring about a resounding, resounding victory there for the benefit not only of the State of Israel, but also for the Palestinian Arabs who could then take an incursion into the Gaza Strip as the first step along building a state in which they can live. And I'm just not fearful of that enemy and simply not never have been, never will be. We have a different perspective there, but I hope you'll give me the chance in a future conversation to talk about that so that people can understand what the concerns are and what the pros and cons might be. We'd be very honored to have you back. So that concludes this. I'm going to share with everybody who was on this, the handles and the social media uh, connections to Habit Honistim. It's so important. And when the world puts itself to rights again, and it will, I hope you'll come back and lecture for us again. And people can see a lecture that you gave up on the multimedia section of our website at the Kennedy School of Government, where you masterfully portrayed and outlined your work. 
And I, I will certainly include a link to that as well. You, right. you're thank you very much. General, you're a and great thank you for the great job you are doing, Benjamin, with Rosita. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And I thank Rosita and I thank my great and powerful colleague, Alan Langer, as ever. And right. Thank you, Alan. Speaking to you next week. Thank you, Amel. Thank you for listening to this podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute, Israel's future in Israel's hands. It's our pleasure to provide you with exclusive content about the State of Israel by way of lectures, seminars, debates, and position papers featuring Israelis who have been at the heart of policymaking and policy implementation. The Miriam Institute is a US-based 501c3 non-for-profit for-purpose organization. If you're enjoying this program, why not partner with us today? Join us in our mission to steer, inform, and lead the international discourse about the State of Israel. Whether you invest in our campus initiatives, our work in the halls of legislation, or our gold standard tours to the State of Israel for international students and faculty, you can invest in the Miriam Institute today by making a tax-deductible donation to our work. Visit us online to learn more about our legacy and naming opportunities at www.miriaminstitute.org. The Miriam Institute, Israel's future in Israel's hands.